Well, I'm Pastor John Biddle, and I'll be uh, delivering the message this morning. Hopefully, the passage that Kelly just read, you heard our purpose statement for Center Point Bible Church, pointing others to Jesus Christ and his word. That's basically what Jesus just said in that passage from Matthew. If you want to turn your Bibles this morning to that passage, again, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. That's where we're going to be today. First, before I get started, I'm going to give you a little homework assignment. This week, when you have the opportunity, go to Psalm 119, the longest psalm, and read the exaltation of God's holy word from that song, psalm. Read it. Meditate on it. Take it in sections. Again, it's very long. Psalm 119. Put that little note on your worship bulletin, and that's your homework assignment this week. Read what God has inspired the psalmist to write about his holy word. There are times when reading the words of Jesus that we find him answering what appears to be an unasked question. It happens in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes at night. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See what I mean? Where did that come from? Jesus just answered a question that Nicodemus did not ask. Why did Jesus blow right by what Nicodemus said and say what he did to him? Because Jesus knows the heart of men. He knows what's in the heart of men. He knows what the real issues are that they need answered. And he doesn't waste time. He gets right to the heart of the matter. In our passage today in Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount... In verses 17 to 20, is just the same type of interlude or answered question, answer to a question that wasn't asked. What Jesus is doing, he's answering the question that he knows is clouding people's minds and hindering them from hearing what he is saying to them in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also going to hinder them, if he doesn't clear this issue up, this question, it's going to hinder them from hearing what he's about to teach them in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at our passage again. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17, 20. I know Kelly just read it. We're going to do it one more time. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These verses follow the Beatitudes. 
They are a continuation of the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And it runs from chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, through verse, chapter 6, through chapter 7. Pastor Lowell has been showing us the impact these verses have on our lives as believers of Jesus Christ, as committed followers of the King. Verses 3 to 12 describe our identity as children of the King. This is what we are to be as people of the kingdom of heaven. How we are to reflect the character of the King. And in verses 13 to 16, we're told how we are to live as people of the kingdom. What our purpose is, what our role is as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And when I read verses 3 through 16, I'm convicted and I am humbled. Because I don't live up to these holy standards. What am I to do? What can I do to make the changes in my life necessary to meet God's kingdom holy standard that he is presenting for us here in his word? And no doubt the people that Jesus was addressing that day that he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount, on the side of that mountain, they probably had the same question running through their minds. How do we do this? And Jesus does not need that question to be asked verbally. Because he knows the heart of man. He knows our hearts. The scriptures say because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knows what's in your heart today. That might scare some of you. And it should. The king hears our questions loud and clear before they're asked. And he, he seems to pause in his sermon on the mount here as, a, as an interlude and inserts these, these four verses, 17 to 20, to answer our questions by pointing us to himself and his word. Remember what Pastor Lowell has shown us. What he has told us, what he has taught us. Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus as the king of heaven. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing his listeners and us the way of the kingdom. And to those people, this teaching is something new and and totally different than anything that people have heard from their religious leaders of that day. They're amazed by the things that Jesus is saying. His methods of teaching, his precepts of the king, kingdom, made people listen and it made them wonder, what kind of teacher is this? He doesn't sound like the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, his meekness, his humility, his compassion made him a stark contrast to the leaders in Israel who were proud, who were boastful, who were hypocritical, always looking to lift themselves up and always pointing to themselves. But by contrast, Jesus was always lifting others up. He was not calling for perfection. He was calling for devotion 
He was not calling for condemnation. He was calling for forgiveness. He was not calling for legalism. He was calling for mercy. Jesus did not seek out the ladder climbers of society. He sought the people that the ladder climbers stepped on to get their way to the top. He was extraordinary. He was revolutionary. And those religious leaders that were observing him from the crowd were likely questioning in their minds, by what authority does he say these things? A similar question to the one that they would verbalize in Luke chapter 20 when they say to Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Was Jesus daring to set himself over their authority? And what about these teachings of his? Who did he think he was? Was this new teaching overruling the sacred law of Moses that they were in charge of? That was something that they would not tolerate. Their ears were closed. They would not hear anything that he said if they felt that he was threatening their self-appointed roles as guardian of God's law. See, Jesus was threatening their establishment. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. He saw right into their hearts. And after having presented the Beatitudes, after having presented these, these first 16 verses... He then addresses their thoughts because he was about to expound upon the law later in this chapter, which Pastor Lowell is going to take us through. And he needed to clear this up right away because their thoughts were going to hinder them from hearing his message. Let's take a closer look at verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See that phrase, do not think? Well, right there, that tells us that Jesus is seeing into their minds. He's answering the unspoken questions that's clouding their minds. He's addressing their misconceptions about his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Teaching that has already come and teaching that is about to come. In these two verses, Jesus affirms his authority over the kingdom of God. His authority over the law and word of God. And he affirms his authority to teach the heart of the kingdom of God. Now before we go any further, let's clarify some terms that he uses here. Okay? First is the law or the prophets. What was Jesus referring to? Was he referring to the ceremonial law of Israel? Was he referring to the civil or judicial law? Was it the Ten Commandments or the moral law of God? Or was it the hundreds of laws created by the scribes and Pharisees? There's two New Testament passages that we can look at where Jesus uses the same term. First in Luke 16, 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. In other words, 
He says everything written and spoken by and for God from Genesis to Malachi and up to and including John the Baptist, he is calling the law and the prophets. And then there's this passage in Matthew 22. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you see, when Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets, or the law or the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. All of it, from Genesis to Malachi. I remember as a new believer, I come to Christ and, and I... I suddenly had this hunger for the word, and I started devouring the word, and I thought I understood everything. I was all that in a bag of chips. And I wouldn't read the Old Testament, because the Old Testament, to me, wasn't pertinent to me. I'm a New Testament believer, so all I wanted to focus on was the New Testament. And then I picked up a book by Philip Yancey called The Bible That Jesus Read. And it helped me to see and understand That the Old Testament is pertinent to the New Testament. That together, they go together, they are God's word. And they help us to understand what Jesus is talking about. The Old Testament helps us to understand the things that Jesus is referring to in the New Testament. And the more I study this word, God's word as a whole, the Old and New Testament together, and the more the Holy Spirit enables me to understand his word, And he reveals the treasure that's found within these pages. And he lifts me to worship God in truth, to worship his word. I realize that the title to Philip Yancey's book was incorrect. It's not the Bible that Jesus read. It's the Bible that Jesus wrote. All of it. It's written about him. It's about every word in the Old Testament points to the king. And many of the faithful Obedient Old Testament believers understood it and they got it and they saw it. This is why Jesus says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota or jot in some of your translations, was the Greek word referring to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the yod. It's no bigger than an apostrophe, or it's a superscript. The dot or tittle in some translations is the smallest stroke or segment of a letter. Just like the dot over our eye. Or the bottom leg on the letter E that when it's not there makes it a letter F. Or that little mark you put on an O to make it a Q. Jesus is affirming that every mark of every character, of every word, of every verse, of every chapter, of every book in the Old Testament, and his word is divinely inspired and meaningful for edifying the kingdom of God and kingdom believers. He's affirming that there's not one tiny stroke in the word of God that can be ignored or disrespected. None of it will pass away or be discarded, he says. Not a single letter or part of a letter until all has been fulfilled. 
And his fulfillment, he says, will not be complete until the heaven and the earth themselves pass away. And when Jesus said that, every Old Testament Jew who knew the word of God, who knew their scriptures, knew exactly what he was talking about. We see it in Revelation 21, where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But they would have known it from other Old Testament scriptures, such as this one in Isaiah 51.6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. Jesus was declaring the eternal perpetuity of his written word. When he says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's telling the people that the Old Testament pointed forward to him and his teaching. The judicial and ceremonial law of Israel ended with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. No longer would sacrifices be necessary for the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice had been made on the cross by Jesus himself. No longer would sin offerings be necessary because the final ultimate sin offering was made by Jesus. That's done. That's fulfilled. That's complete. But the basic moral law of God centered in the Ten Commandments lives on all except for the Sabbath. And the moral law of God would remain until the end of this age. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the moral law is what he will speak to in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. He will expound upon those Ten Commandments. It is this moral law that the psalmist exalts in Psalm 119 when he says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And it's this moral law of God that the Pharisees and the scribes had abused and corrupted in the lives of the people of Israel. And this prompts Jesus' warning in verse 19 concerning tampering with any of his word. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, to relax here does not mean go home this afternoon and relax on your couch. That's not what it means. Relax here means to release, to lay aside or disregard. To disregard a commandment, any commandment in the law of God is to wrongly identify any commandment as least. It's to demote it to a lesser position. And Jesus says he will not tolerate that. To do that reduces you to the least status in the kingdom. And greatness, he says, in the kingdom belongs to those who are faithful in doing and teaching, rightly teaching, the whole moral law of God. Every word. The people of the kingdom, if you believe yourself to be a part of the kingdom, you will be held accountable for how you handle the word of God, how we respect it, how we observe it. That should scare us a little bit. This is serious stuff. 
And Jesus affirms a vital connection between the word of God and the kingdom of God. He says they go hand in hand. You cannot live a kingdom life without the word of God's kingdom in your life. Now, in verse 19, Jesus implies the scribes and Pharisees as the target of his warning. But in verse 20, he just flat calls them out. He holds them accountable in their responsibility as the teachers of God's people, while at the same time, he sets a standard for the righteousness for entering the kingdom of God. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a shocking statement. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven to the Jewish listener that day. Jesus' statement that no, meant no one could enter the kingdom of heaven. Because no one was considered more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were right. No one was more self-righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And that's Jesus' point. That's the point of the Beatitudes. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not achieved by self-righteousness. It's achieved by the imputed righteousness of the one and only righteous king. And the lawyers of that time, the scribes and the political leaders of that time, the Pharisees, had abandoned the absolute truth of God, corrupted it by their own relativism or truth as they saw it. They had corrupted God's word by watering it down with their own laws and ordinances and lifting their laws and ordinances to be the highest standard by by which men were judged. They'd taken the Ten Commandments of God, the moral law of God, the absolute truth of God, and they decided they they needed to refine them because obviously God did not do a good enough job. And they knew more than God. So they created 248 commandments and 365 negative prohibitions, one for every day, not to mention thousands of other meaningless regulations and rules. And they made it virtually impossible for the people to get through a day without fear of breaking one of their man-made rules or their man-made laws. You see, they'd done what sinful man always does when he's confronted with absolute truth of, of which he is unwilling to live up to. They'd done what sinful man always does when confronted with the highest of standards for holy living that they have no desire to ascend to. They lower the standards. Or as my teenage daughter said the other night, they just put the bar on the floor. See, they lower the bar to something they can reach in their own power. They create their own man-made works-based religion. They set themselves up up as the ultimate authority, overriding any other authority, even the word of God, repressing and condemning any that would challenge their authority. Those are the characteristics of a false religion. Those are the characteristics of a cult. 
And that's what Jesus encountered when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. The religious leaders had so corrupted the absolute truth of God that the common people had become lost and confused about what God needed from them, about how they were to live. And as Jesus says of those leaders in Matthew 23, they preach, but they don't practice. He says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And this is the cultural background that Jesus encountered when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. A culture that abandoned the absolute truth of God's word and elevated their, themselves, their rules, their laws, lifted them up as their own gods, their own truth, based on their own self-righteousness. And then they go and they convince people that their way is the only way to heaven, that their way is the truth. All the while, their lies are leading people right into the pit of hell. And it's no different than our culture today. If Jesus were to walk in today to preach the Sermon on the Mount in this country, he would find the same culture. A culture that thinks the way to create the utopian society is by casting aside the absolute moral truth of God and evolving to a standard of to a standard where immorality is in the eye of the beholder. My truth is not your truth. Your truth is not my truth. And they proclaim that the rights of selfish, sinful men and women take precedence over the morality of the creator. The culture today says man has progressed. The word of God does not keep up with the time when the truth is that the time does not fit. The word of God. They didn't like that one, did they? See, I would rather stand with God and be condemned by the world than stand with the world and be condemned by God. But praise be to the King who enters, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, Emmanuel, the Word, and He teaches us. His kingdom people. He teaches us the most perfect way. He teaches the way of the kingdom. He teaches the character of the king. He teaches that the high standards of God will not be lowered and they will not be set aside by anyone, not even him. And he tells us that the key to living in the kingdom resides in the king, Jesus, and his holy word. And the entrance into the kingdom, he says, the kingdom of heaven is reserved not for the self-righteous, but the humble, the meek, those that are poor in spirit, and know that they have no righteousness outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ the king. Look, if those Jews had been tuned into that day, if their ears had been listening, if their eyes were opened, if their hearts had been opened, they would have known that they were looking right into the eyes of the one who was the consummation of the entire word of God. 
They would have known they were looking right at the one and listening to the one who was the the consummation of the entire word, the one spoken of in the law, the one spoken of in the prophets. This was their king standing in front of them. This was their God. They would have understood Jesus when he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill it. I'm not calling for revolution. I am the revelation. I've not come to destroy the word of God. I am the word of God. I am the completion. That's what he was telling them. That's what he's telling us today. If their hearts had been open, they would have known this was their true king. But what about us today? What about every seat in here today? Do we know him as the true king? Do we know this is his inerrant word? Are we putting this in our life so that we can live the kingdom life? I wonder, do we know him truly? Have each of us bowed our knee before the throne of the king and confessed the name of Jesus as our Lord today? Do we believe the absolute truth of God? Do we stand with Jesus, the king? Or do we stand with a twisted culture that wants to lead us right into the pit of hell? That's the question for us today. Let me close with a story from the Old Testament that I heard one day and I just had to go find it. I want to read this to you. You'll hear the king in every book of the Old Testament. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the promise keeper. In Judges, he is the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the true king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken walls. In Esther, he is the rescuer. In Job, he is the sovereign creator. In Psalms, he is the Lord of praise. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is true wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is the true lover and bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the Lord of glory. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the eternal loyal husband. In Joel, he is the holy restorer. In Amos, he is the God of justice. In Obadiah, he is the savior judge. In Jonah, He is the merciful missionary. In Micah, he is the ruler from old of ancient days. In Nahum, he is the avenger. In Habakkuk, he is the evangelist pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, he is the shelter from desolation. In Haggai, he is the glory of the house of God. In Zechariah, he is the Lord who remembers. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness arising with the healing in his wings. From Genesis to Revelation... This is his story. This is his word. He is the reason and purpose for our life. He is our righteousness. He is our king. Praise be 
to Jesus our Lord and Savior. Do you know him today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, Lord, for your word, for your Son, for your righteousness. You took our sin and laid it on your Son, and you took his righteousness and imputed it to us. We can be called children of God only because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. By his blood we are saved. By your mercy and grace you call us sons and daughters. God, we owe you everything. Lord, may we serve you May we humbly kneel before you and may we proclaim the majesty of the king of heaven and earth and everything that we say and do, Lord, may we reflect the character of the one and only righteous king. And all God's people said, amen.